This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 1pm. Kindly sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. What do you want to be when you grow up? They say you are what you read and the University Bookshop can help you be whoever you want to be. Do you want to be an athlete? Then sit down with an inspiring sports biography. Do you fancy yourself as a detective? We have a grisly lineup of murder mysteries waiting just for you. Do you aspire to be the world's greatest chef? We have cookbooks to tantalise your taste buds. Do you want to celebrate your inner child? Play up in our fabulous children's room. The University Bookshop, helping you decide what you want to be when you grow up. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and is sponsored by that fabulous university bookshop. So join us for the next hour as we delve into that wonderful world of books. My first guest today is David Eggleton and he's an award-winning poet, uh, book critic, editor and writer. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing him on Write On in the past. Now he was recently the New Zealand Poet Laureate and this month launches Respirator, a Poet Laureate collection 2019 to 2022. David, welcome back to the show. Oh, kia ora, Linda. Yeah, good to be here. Now, um, I always like to sort of start with finding out where your origins came about because I think listeners are really interested in finding out you know, how you started out in writing and poetry has been such a huge part of your life. <coughs> where did this love of poetry begin? Um, oh, well, I've always, I've, it's, it seems to be something that I've just um, always been interested in since I was a child. Um, I think just the sounds of words and listening to, um, I suppose, um, my parents um, and then the family and then um, being part of the community. So um, f- I, I suppose the difference for me is, I mean, everyone has that, but uh, for me the difference is I, I sort of became obsessed by the sounds of words and just interested in how they were put together and what you could do with language and uh, I kind of just kept following that that instinct um, in terms of uh, wanting to craft poems and or, or little rhymes and things and... Um, so that was like when I was a, a, a child and um, then uh, I just kind of continued that at high school and used to contribute poems to the high school magazine and um, and at the same time I was listening to the radio quite a lot and uh, I sort of was an era of uh, great pop songs, rock songs and I was quite taking the lyrics of um, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and um, Simon and Garfunkel and and all the rest of them, um, Bob Dylan and, um, and sort of the protest um, folk songs of the era um, were also of interest and then into psychedelic psychedelic rock and uh, I was fascinated by the sort of mystical implications of some of those songs and that sort of appealed to me. Um, and so there was a group of us really at high school who were writing, um, but I now think that I, looking back at it, I'm sort of one of the few that carried on actually writing um, all, all the time after school, um, uh, um, then I left and uh, and continued to write, and so it's um, it, for me it's been a, like a life lifelong kind of um, preoccupation. Is um, how do you how do you express your feelings and how do you say things in the best possible language? Um, and so I looked for examples of that and then tried to work out 
that for myself. So it's about communicating through um, the power of language, but specific kinds of language. So I was also interested in the sophisticated ways you could use words. I mean, there are, um, you know, propaganda and um, journalism um, and um, just for me it was about how how to empower myself by by using poetry um and a, and uh, living in south auckland um being part of a, a kind of um a, a, a part of a, um, a sort of working class um area where we weren't actually um given very many options for um allowing ourselves platforms to express ourselves in those days so so for me it was like finding a way of <clears throat> um Finding a form, and, and then so I, I after school I joined um I, I, in bands and um, punk rock bands and things, and because um, I found that um, a good way to to get my thoughts and feelings across. Um, and at the same time, I was also interested in serious poetry, so I continued uh, sort of my research and explorations of poets like T. S. Eliot and Dylan Thomas. Uh, in New Zealand, there was James K. Baxter and Honey Tufari were very big influences on me um, as a young person growing up. Um, and uh, they uh, kind of gradually found my way um, into American poetry. Um, and then my peers at the time were slightly older age group, people like um, uh, Ian Weddy and um, Alan Brunton and um, Murray Edmund um, were known as the free generation of poets at Auckland University, and I was quite impressed by them. And so I, I thought that I needed to distinguish myself from the kind of poetry they were, the kinds of poetry they were writing. So I, I kind of found my own way to to write, and I, I persevered with that. So it's always been a kind of a dialogue or conversation with other poets in New Zealand, uh, what what they're doing um, in terms of what I'm doing, um, and trying to find my own corner or way of expressing um, my opinions and feelings um, and thoughts and perceptions about um, the society I live in. And your, your you know, thoughtfulness, obviously, about words and the power of words hasn't just limited itself to poetry because, you know, you have an outstanding career also in um, critiquing other, other people's works, you know, editing, for example, Landfall magazine. How has that whole other arena of thinking about literary um, writing informed or helped your poetic works? Uh, well, I think of, I think it was all one—a kind of a unified approach. Really, it's like a whole field of uh, of writing um, literature. Sort of for me, is interconnected. I, I think it comes back to actually living in Aotearoa um, and how small it is, and so you can actually um, cover cover the whole field of uh, of writing possibilities in terms of um, of getting opportunities and. Um, I mean, on, on one level that's true, but on another level I found it <clears throat> quite difficult to actually break in. Um, <clears throat> so I was, I was sort of a marginalised figure. Um, and so for me, writing about um, other poets is one way of, of joining the community. Um, and so as a, a reviewer, you kind of get to um, comment on, on, on poets and they read what you say and, and sort of can relate to that or not. Um, and so there's a conversation going on there. And so um, talking about, um, or rather writing about all those <clears throat> other art forms um so i was doing quite a lot of reviewing for quite a while um and for me first in the first instance it was about finding out about those art forms um so i didn't go to any particular training school to um learn about them i kind of was a bit an auto autodidact i sort of taught myself how to um understand and um articulate my thoughts and feelings about what I was experiencing when I went along to theatre or when I read a New Zealand novel um, in terms of trying to relate it to other books 
Um, so, yeah, it was a process of self-education, but um, also li- lucky enough to live in a country which has really good, like, libraries and facilities and, um, and makes education available to, you know, to everyone, and, and you just have to follow the opportunities that are there, um, um, in theory anyway. Um, but there's, there's always a few uh, problems with actually achieving some of those objectives in terms of self-education. And that, um, but um, anyway, I worked it out. So... so so the real obsession of mine was to understand where I was in relation to the rest of the society in this country and to consider some of the um, form- formative um, ideas which went into making up New Zealand as a country um, and, and where, we, where we've come from. And so I've seen all these transformations and now we're in, a, in the 21st century, um, 2023, we're in a kind of a, a different phase where um, we've got identity politics um, which is really controlling the narrative and, and for me that's exciting um, um, I've always been <laughs> drawn to um, contentious narratives narratives of conflict and um, contrast and the idea that um, you can have lots of different points of view and none of them is necessarily the correct one they are sort of compromises and um, um, ways of adjusting between the different competing interests in a particular society so these are the kinds of things that I kind of found out essentially for myself so I've never really followed the um, the, the mainstream idea of um, of um, sort of formal education basically uh, in, a, in, a, in a word um, so I, I kind of um, really self self-taught um, and and kind of learning what I what I needed as I went along yeah so you carved out um, a niche for yourself really because you know if you you the way you um, write and your poet works, you know, do feel unique within that New Zealand landscape. And I've seen you in action you know, performing your work, um, and you've alluded to having had that background in musicality as well. So, you know, in the writing of your works, do, how how much does that performance element come into it when you're writing? Do you write out loud, as it were? Um. I think it really starts with a concept um, that I want to achieve something and then I use uh, what I have, which is a voice, and that's what poetry is, um, uh, essentially, um, a, a voice um, and your own voice, and you find your own voice and then you transmute your feelings um, and you channel um, through that voice um, what, you, what, you, what you want to express about your moment um, on earth or your, your place in, in the vision of things. And so, um, yeah, I, I kind of... Um, think of voice as very very important um and coming back to what i first said is really that poetry for me was something i heard um um and 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 kind of related to it as an oral form um something sort of sounds of words um um, i was fascinated by them um so um yeah the performance element is like is like crucial to to poetry because poetry goes back to you know shamanistic utterances around the fire um and and very sort of primeval kind of um sense of um the human condition um you know under a under the galaxy of stars and all that sort of thing so it's like that 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 very primal connection to breath language how you say things the rhythm the rhythm of the heartbeat um, all those essential, very authentic things which te- can get covered over or obscured, but which are always there. 
Um, and uh, when you use um, words to make a poem, you um, are sort of conscious of all those elements. So, so, and so, incantation, um, chanting, um, rhythm, um, 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 just getting a, almost into a kind of a trance-like state to project um, the art form. So, so it's related to dance. It's related to music. It's related to theatre. It's related to um, all the visual arts um, and performance arts. Um, there's poetry at the centre. So for me, it's it's like the the the, the, the fundamental form that, that informs the others. Now you've recently finished your time as New Zealand's poet laureate, which you know is, to, in my mind, you know a, a figurehead type of position that sort of encapsulates all that you've just talked about here. This this lovely history of performance, this history of poetry, of um, the arts. So, how did that time as poet laureate benefit you? Uh, for me, it's like um, being part of that tradition. It's sort of an acknowledgement, really. That um, I mean, I've, I've, I've quite a long time I went along having um, people kind of acknowledging me, but I never got much institutional or official acknowledgement until quite recently. Um, and I guess that that being appointed the twelfth poet laureate, um, um, it, it was was a, um, a, a form of a form of acknowledgement and a kind of a benediction um, you know granted granted to me to um, speak out um, in my own voice but also to um, represent um, poetry in uh, to the wider community for for that period of time which because of um, the pandemic was extended by a, a year so I had a three-year term and usually it's a, a two-year term so the the new poet laureate Chris C um, has has been a uh, given a two-year term so uh, the idea is really to share it around and let as many parts as possible of high caliber have the opportunity to um you know to um, be part of that that community of um of recognized poets who can um speak on behalf of their their community and into the wider community so so yeah so for me of course being the lockdown laureate i um <laughs> didn't get many opportunities to travel um as it were um, apart from zoom um performances and, and things so uh, but on the other hand I, because everyone turned inward you know the, the, the borders were closed and <clears throat> everyone was kind of focused on themselves really and their own families and and their own situations and there was kind of a sense of trepidation and 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 worry anxiety and nervousness but also I think at that time our senses were heightened it was a it was a very intense time the three years that I had <laughs> it was also a time time when the whole country was like um, wondering what was going to happen next, and also, you know, uh, paying attention to, to 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 our immediate surroundings and environment. Um, and so, for that for that moment, was actually very special. And um, so, I'm quite privileged to be the poet laureate of, of that time. I think, because um, as I say, you know, when everything's heightened, um, and you're wondering if you're actually going to make it through. Um, you know, and, and your family's feels uh, under siege and, and things like that. Um, it, it becomes um, a time when people are actually um, thinking of poetry as um, helping to explain or to make sense of their feelings. People reached out to the arts in a huge way during the pandemic, you know, with what they're reading, with what they're watching. Yeah. Um, how does the arts, you know, yep. step in in this time? And that's right. And also, lots of artists and 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 people came back from overseas. So mm-hmm. to um, and it was almost like because New Zealand was this um, um, privileged place, we, we didn't have the the virus for quite a long time. Um, people thought of you know almost as a utopian place where you could we could. Um, 
you know, develop um, new ideas and things. And that, that was a brief moment, but it's, it, it, we went through the amazing number of these sort of radical transformations or, or kind of um, moments, you know, sort of, of um, at, at that time. And, and, and so, so I tuned into quite a few of those and tried to capture a sense of that in my poems. Did you find that a productive time for you? Because I know many people in the in the creative um, world actually struggled with just the, the mindset that came with sitting within the midst of a pandemic. Um, yeah, no, actually, I found it a very very fruitful time. I produced a lot of poems. I produced a lot more poems and ended up in my in my collection uh, of poet laureate poems. Um, in the end, um, <clears throat> because they were some of them were, were very much poems tied to specific thing, specific things like the the bubble. You know, when um, Jacinda Ardern talked about everyone staying in their bubble, so I wrote a, a sort of a bubble poem, um, and and it was like the novelty of, of that. Um, um, but then I didn't think it was worth keeping as a poem for my for my collection. So. So that that the, the book the book is 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 a, a, um, is most of the poems, but there's a few quite a few that are missing as well. Um, but for me, it was a very productive fertile time in terms of um, producing um, new work um, and uh, having lots of ideas, um, and and also I suppose not having so much pressure um, in terms of you know um, people were encouraged to stay home and, and sort of do as little as possible <laughs> and just kind of <laughs> wait it out um, and so there we were kind of navel gazing and just looking around and so I mean that's kind of what a poet does all the time so uh, I was sort of was, was, for me it was like a refinement of my a usual um, state of alertness and, and wondering what's going on um, and trying to make sense of it. So so everyone was doing the same. Um, and, and it so happened that I was then uh, kind of the uh, semi-official spokesperson for that for that, that, that sense or, or the, uh, that moment in the zeitgeist, that, that kind of time between 2019 and 2022, basically we just came out of it at the end of last year, uh, when, uh, you know, it was a surreal place to be um, uh, anywhere on, on the globe was um, because of the, 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 the Wuhan flu, the, you know, the, the virus circulating and, and uncertainty around that um, and where we'd end up and, and you know, the, all the, the, the coffins stacked up and, and, and you'd see that on the news and things and, you know, it was quite apocalyptic time um, and it seemed to be threatening us directly so yeah so being the um, poet laureate you know it really gives you a, a mandate to speak and you, you spoke, said earlier how a lot of your work is political social commentary so did you feel you were able to do that even more so um, during your time as the laureate um, well the great thing about poetry is there's no uh, uh, fixed definition beyond the fact that you're using language and even then uh, that doesn't apply for me. I took on the mantle of being a, a poet who comments on society a long time ago, and so it was a continuation of that, really, just an acknowledgement and a confirmation um, by by those in, down the corridors of power and, and the literary establishment that I could do that on behalf of the nation. Um, however, briefly, so so the, 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 I followed on from. Um, uh, Selena Tusitala Marsh, who focused very much on Pacifica and 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 feminist issues, or, or um, the role, and also on climate change. So she was quite political as well. And um, I feel that um, uh, um, I'm kind of following on from what what she was doing with in, in her time as the poet laureate. Um, and I think Chris C is is um, 
you know, he's, uh, he's appeared um, at some um, gay pride events and, and he also speaks um, for his community, the Chinese community. And, and so as, that, that's what we're supposed to be doing is, is talking about where we, where we come from and, and where we are um, within, within, this, within the society, New Zealand society. And, um, and, and so I've just tried to do that really with my, with my poetry. Well, I'd love to give you the opportunity to actually share um, some of your work. So um, do you have a, a poem or two that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, well, uh, I've talked about the pandemic. So this is a poem from Respirator, my, my Poet Laureate collection, uh, which, which has been published this month. And uh, it, uh, it's called Pandemic. Pandemonium, pandemonium. Order disaster with a wheelie bin. Lift the lid. Pour out all within. Taste wildfires. Inhale smoke. Hunker on Zoom. Try to look woke. Crystals. Hung as mobiles. Go splenetic. Go nowhere in this pandemic. Shelter in place. Masks as hot as hot breath on each face. Hands put together pushed apart, Vulcan greetings given from the heart, pandemonium, pandemonium, lonely islands loom, stock still, like container ships under sun's grill, the world pre-COVID has gone under, scent of hand sanitizer hangs in air, Nikau palms stretch to the sunset, well met but keep your distance from me, Fever hides from border detection In all these knots of connection Some sicken, some die, some get well soon Our looking glass is the far off moon Pandemonium, pandemonium Each month advances margin by margin Mortality rides a winged gas guzzler Over the perimeter, over the border Brandish the brand, a bright sword Throws a lance of light to bring us word Full moon tonight, a blood moon Then a super moon full of blood Not for gardens as the earth turned aside Lament each life lost, numbers mummified By the news into one mighty sarcophagus Pandemonium Pandemonium A terracotta army transported We gaze up into the night sky beyond the telescope Anguish might crack and fry each screen. Riders storm the night, apocalyptic in dream. Out there, COVID-19 with grim pomp and ceremony traces its destiny. We stay home. We stay quiet in our lanes, lit by reflections of approaching flames. Though clouds of uncertainty flocculate, we know that a needle can inoculate. Yeah, so that's called pandemonium. That's great, thank you. Well, um, that's amazingly all we've got time for today, which is a shame because I'd love to have heard more work and um, hopefully we'll have opportunity again in the, the future for that. So look, thank you so much, David, for coming well, on the show Cheers. and talking about your work and your upcoming collection, Respirator, a Poet Laureate Collection 2019 to 2022. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> But we're going to just take a short music break, then we'll be back soon. Where the grey cactus grows 
do you want to be when you grow up? They say you are what you read and the university bookshop can help you be whoever you want to be. Do you want to be an athlete? And sit down with an inspiring sports biography. Do you fancy yourself as a detective? We have a grisly lineup of murder mysteries waiting just for you. Do you aspire to be the world's greatest chef? We have cookbooks to tantalise your taste buds. Do you want to celebrate your inner child? Play up in our fabulous children's room. The University Bookshop, helping you decide what you want to be when you grow up. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. David Elliott is a Dunedin writer and illustrator of children's books who has not only created some of our favorite, um, family favourite books, but has also worked with other writers such as Margaret Mahi and illustrated books in Brian Jacques' Red Wall series. He's a multi-award winning author illustrator with Snark winning the 2017 Margaret Mahi Book of the Year and an International White Raven Award. David joins me today with his wife and business partner, Jill Elliott. David and Jill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting us on. Well, let's start by talking about your illustrating and writing before we move more into the the store and the business side of things. Now, book illustrating is a very skilled and specific art form. How did you first become involved in it? Um, I... 
It's an interesting question. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how I actually got involved in it in the first place. I think I'm, I desperately tried actually not to be a writer and illustrator for a while because I was at art school and illustration wasn't um, considered the, the thing to do. But uh, unfortunately, I just kept getting involved in stories and doing drawings that had a sort of narrative to them. And I suppose it really came to the fore when I ended up living and working in Edinburgh, where I actually met my lovely wife, Jill. And um, I had time there where away from, I suppose, my peers, and I, I just fully indulged myself, really. I just got stuck into it. And um, by the time I got back to New Zealand, I really had the manuscript. I had, I had spent time going down to London to see publishers. I knew a little bit more about what was involved in it. So, um, yeah, it sort of took off from there. That's that's really how I got involved, I think. So what was the very first book that you created? It was called Arthur's Star, and it came out in 1986. And um, I, it, was a, it was a strange little book, really, because it was a really about a, a little boy in a, in a bed. Oh, sorry. Um and it was all about a little boy who, or actually a star that was very bored floating in the sky at night and it decides that it's sick of shining and it wants to come down and play with a little boy in his bedroom. But the original drawings I did for it was so dark that <laughs> I had to change them considerably to get them published, um, which it was just one of those things I had to, to learn to get into the trade, really. And the other unfortunate thing about it was that um, Ron Briley brought out Whitcalls, the publishers, just as the book came out. So it got immediately remainded and ended up going out very cheaply. But the really interesting thing about it is that because a lot of people ended up buying the book because it was so cheap, a lot of people now, it's, t t it's got this little cult following and people are still trying to get in touch with me and say, yeah, can we get a hold of a, um, a copy of Arthur Stark as it was a favourite of our kids and our grandchildren want them now and that sort of thing. So it, it had a mixed blessing, really. It was it was interesting. Mm. Well, that's funny you say it has a cult following because that was one of our family favourites at times oh, really? <laughs> that I read to my boys and that, that they absolutely loved and was probably one of my first experiences with your um, illustrated books. Um, Have you still got a copy? Um, ours was a library copy. Ah, right. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. um, I think people, you know, they pay good folding money for that book nowadays. You can hardly get hold of a copy of it anyway. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, yeah. So how did you find, um, you, know, you wrote this book for yourself and got this one published, but mm -hmm. you not only have... You know, published and created your own stories, but you've illustrated for other writers um, with mm -hmm. their stories. How was that experience for you? Um, well, it's it's. I think it's probably a rite of passage for any illustrator is to try and um, illustrate for other people, especially the different demands that certain kinds of illustration have if you're trying to be a professional at it. I mean, I like a lot of other illustrators in New Zealand. I I uh, 
well, at one stage when we were, when our kids were growing up and I didn't have, I had to work as a teacher. So um, I didn't have very much time to do full illustration for picture books. So I ended up working for the journal, school journal, like a lot of illustrators in New Zealand. And that was, that was a great um, exercise for me, even though I'm not that fond of some of the work I did for it now. When I look back, it was, um, it was a big learning process for me. Um and that that was probably my first chance to work with other people. And the, I suppose the other thing is that quite often you get a sort of a mentor and the author. If you're a young person starting out in the trade, for instance, I ended up um, doing a book for Pauline Cartwright, who had you know who had really been quite established as a New Zealand writer, and we I worked together with her on one of her picture books. And it not only gave me a chance to actually try and develop my my ideas to fit in with her story, but also it gave me a chance to talk to her. And she gave me a great insight into how publishing was working in New Zealand and uh, the sorts of things I needed to pay attention to. Uh, I suppose one of the most important things that happened to me was working with Brian Jakes, um, th that big series, the Redwall series, that... Um, I'm not sure whether people listening will know those books now. They seem to have fallen out of favour, but they're kind of a um, classic little uh, chapter, well, chapter novels, aren't they, with black and white spot illustrations in them. And uh, I got that job, I think, through Joy Cowley, who had a collection with the publisher who was publishing out of New York at that stage. And through them, I got to work with a wonderful editor and another wonderful art editor as well. And I ended up doing seven of those books. And each book had 45 drawings in it. And I did about a dozen rough drawings for every book, every illustration that turned up in it. So they ended up as massive um, projects for me. But they also gave me a chance to refine my technique and refine my ideas and this art editor really taught me an immense amount about illustration especially since they were all much the same kind of shape little black and white illustrations all the way through i've often said it was like um doing scales on a piano <laughs> you just kept doing them again and again and again and trying to refine it and i think that was a that was just uh, a real blessing in disguise that that job those jobs i loved doing it yeah. So they helped you hone your craft in many ways. It did. Oh, well, I hope I hope it shows in my illustration now. Um, but yeah, they're a great challenge in the end because I I made a, a deal with myself that I'd never never um, repeat a composition. So <laughs> when you think of the amount of drawings that were involved in those with all these funny little creatures, you know, in their woodland uh, castles and things, yeah. So um, working with other writers, when mm. is it a really close relationship? Because, um, you know, I have heard stories from um, some writers who don't get much say in their illustrations. You know, have you had close working relationships with the writers that you have illustrated their books? Do you, you know, do they get um, it's, it's sort of been a bit mixed. As far as Brian Jakes was concerned, I had definitely had a buffer 
of the publisher between me and and Brian. Um, you know, I produced roughs. They would go to the editors. The editors would give them to Brian. Brian would look at them, make comments, give them back. And I never talked to him personally, even though I did, I think, uh, 11 books of his in the end. Um, so, and I think that probably that was a good idea. <laughs> I'm not sure what sort of bloke he was. We did have that great... The, the reputation that he had with publishers was was, was a, it could be a bit, a, you know quite demanding. So I, I was quite grateful for that situation. But on the other hand, um, I worked with Margaret Mahi on a book that we did together, and I had done a bigger anthology of her poetry. And but I really wanted to do a picture book with her, and I kept saying to her, Margaret, come on. You know, you've got to write a picture book for me so I can do it and do the illustrations. And she used to say, yeah, yes, yes, yes. And finally, I came up with the idea and went up to up to Governor's Bay and sort of slapped it down on the table in front of her and said, hey, come on, we're going to do this. But you're going to wordsmith this for me and I'm going to play around with all this wee 3D things that I wanted. And so we really worked together. Um, that was I really, really enjoyed that time because um of course she's just such a wonderful she was such a wonderful person. And and again another mentor. Um so that was great. And with Pauline, of course, too. I also had a very close relationship. So it's kind of been it's, it's going it's been a bit of both, really. <laughs> I can understand why publishers put themselves between um authors and illustrators, because I've often talked to other well, authors who have said, you know, I wish I could have had more to say about this to my illustrator. And I'm thinking from the illustrator point of view, no, I don't think I would have liked to <laughs> <laughs> over my shoulder, you know, telling me what to do. I think the, one of the most important things for me as an illustrator is a sense of ownership over what I'm doing. And if you have all the time got somebody who you feel is over your shoulder looking at what you're doing, I think that that would drive me nuts, and it has drive me nuts on a couple of books. Um, so I would desperately need to have something that's mine inside the the book that I'm illustrating. I've got to find some um, something to do to do with my experience that the author might be writing about, like walking through a forest or being out at sea and the in the waves and things like that. I have to find myself in that before I can actually do a good job on it. Because picture books, you know, they, uh, as well as if you're illustrating for someone else's words, but they have a lot of constraints with number of pages um, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, no, they have a working within such constraint. Well, that, it's good, actually. It's good to have that sort of structure, especially for me, because I, um, I'll, I, even when I'm writing, especially, I just go all over the show. I just follow every tangent until everything just explodes. I mean, I'm, I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not very good with that sort of thing. So having the constraints, uh, the physical constraints of a picture book, it's got a certain size, a certain number of pages, and you have to tell the story on those number of pages, and you have to find somewhere to put the type, and you have to well, – that's the thing that really – really drives me nuts is trying to find space for words because I just want to put pictures everywhere. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that that, that discipline of the, of the structure is very important. Yeah. And would you ever write and illustrate, like, a graphic novel? Um, 
Well, I suppose Snark got close to being a kind of a graphic novel in a way. Um, no, I don't think so. Not now. I think it would take... In fact, I'm sort of backing off a little bit from picture books in general because they really are quite time-consuming. And I feel like I've got so many ideas that I want to get out that to get myself locked into a six-month you know, project where I have to just sit on one idea and uh, work it all the way through and then deal with the publisher and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, so I've sort of backed off from it a little bit. So I think getting myself tangled up in a graphic novel would probably just... That <laughs> 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 would drive me into the ground, I think, at this stage. Who knows? I mean, I never say never, but um, not at this stage. Now, something that you and Jill have done, which is unique, is that you have opened up a, a store in Port Chalmers, The Flying Whale. So how did that all come about? Well, this is where I hand over to Jill because it is just totally Jill. The Flying Whale is Jill's project, uh, even though it's, it's it's given me great opportunities to do different kinds of stuff. Um I think I think she she has to own her own idea. So I'll just pass over to her. <laughs> well, well, don't go away, David, because he's he's kind of underselling himself. Of course, it's all about David. But in terms of what you were suggesting at the outset about it being, you know, bold or taking a risk, I think I I'm the one who likes challenges. I like I like the possibility of failing actually, just as much as the possibility of succeeding. So. Um, I, I had worked at the University Library for over 20 years and had enjoyed that time immensely. But when I took early retirement uh, in 2017, 2018, I was really looking for another challenge. And I didn't particularly want another um, management structure or a boss or anything like that. I wanted to do something that I could control. Um so I actually had recognised that David himself, this is where he can't cut himself completely out of the equation, he had dabbled with making cards of some of his artwork and had made them available uh, very generously through UBS, had spotted that David's work was worth um, selling in, in, in UBS. So I thought, well, that's very small scale. Maybe we could do something a little bit more, um, a bit more than that. So there was a little, there was an opportunity, there was a building in Port Chalmers which had pop-up spaces for artisans to do something during the cruise ship season. So I jumped in one of those spaces while I was still working at the university and did the summer uh, with uh, some of David's books, some cards and a few prints and things. And it seemed to go incredibly well. People's responses were really positive. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. I really enjoyed the conversations with people. It was an opportunity to talk about books, to talk about print, to talk about illustration, and because I do know David's work very well. He and I have always talked about his work, and we've been together for a very long time. So I felt if anybody can do it, it's probably me. So then the time came to make a decision. So I left work, and as luck would have it, there was a space adjacent to the pop-up space I was in, which was considerably larger and had a much more impressive display area. And so I hopped in there with an American painter, which was quite nice for me because I've never done retail in my life before. Um, and she had worked in art galleries in the US. So we split the gallery in two and she had her work on one side of the gallery and I had my work on the other, or David's work. And that was great. 
And we did that for a year. We ran through another cruise ship season. Things were going really well. I was coming up with new ways of presenting David's work on bags, on tea towels, on mugs. I was starting to understand the sort of people who are coming into the gallery and the sort of things they might be looking for. And then my American uh, friend decided she didn't want to be in the gallery anymore. She wanted to pursue other interests. So suddenly I had the entire gallery to myself. So that was April 2018. And I thought, how on earth am I going to fill this whole gallery with David's work? Well, ha ha. <laughs> I haven't got enough space. The walls are full. I keep he keeps doing look, part of the thing of doing this was also this is a sort of background which this might be useful for people to understand. You know, you can't take things with you when you're gone. And I'm not suggesting we're going anywhere in the immediate future. But I like the idea of some of David's work getting into the hands of people who love it and sharing it um, with beyond our own immediate family and friends. So that was kind of one of the kind of steering principles for me. Unfortunately, David keeps producing more work. So the more <laughs> the gallery is becoming an enjoyable and a sort of a success in its own way, the more work he's producing, I've got more stuff to put on the wall. So that's kind of gone by the wayside. Um, however, uh, it, it look, here we are. We had COVID and for everybody. There was two years where it was all very uncertain and I wasn't sure if we could continue. But look, we've just had a complete cruise ship season just passed. It's been really fabulous. Um, and more than that, I think the flying whale itself, as David's work is the flying whale, it's kind of taken on its own identity and Dunedin people have been fabulously supportive. Local people have been wonderful. They they know we're here. They come back uh, repeatedly and independent travellers throughout the winter, you know, keep it viable. And yeah, we're just, we're just trucking on and it's, um, it's a lot of fun. I love telling David's the stories about David's artwork. I love hearing the stories of the people who come into the gallery and what their aspirations are. And um, and a, just a wee side is that we're both very involved in conservation out here in Port Chalmers. And it's because a lot of David's work has increasingly become focused on the natural world, you know, the oceans and the, the wind and the waves, the sea lions, obviously the flying whales. Um, it's a really good opportunity to talk about how much we love our wildlife and the sort of conservation efforts that are happening. And people seem to be really interested. So it's for me, it's a kind of win-win on so many levels. And this, of course, Dunedin is the UNESCO City of Literature. So if you're going to have an illustration gallery somewhere, probably Dunedin is a good place. Now, I had this imagining of um, Jill, you cracking the whip over David, sort of like, come on, get some more work happening for me. But it sounds like it's not quite the case. So, David, are you now sort of starting to create art with like merchandise in mind or, you know, just like one offs? No, not particularly. It's a good question. I mean, some of the most successful things that Jill has in the gallery have happened completely by accident and they've been. They've been gifts for people or, I mean, one little thing that we have is that it was a, uh, it's called Yoga for Sheep, which is a tea towel, which was just a piece of fun that I did for a friend of mine who's a yoga teacher. Um, and that just kind of happened. And then we looked at it and thought, oh, you know, well, Jill looked at it and said that would make a good tea towel or make a good poster. And it, 
that's probably the biggest thing that's been sold sold out of that gallery. Just about everybody on those ships wants one of those tea towels. So they are very cute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose the things that you do because you genuinely are amused by the idea yourself, and that you are doing it for somebody who you who you care about. It, they are the things that seem to be the most successful. It's it's a wee bit like the latest we. Um, um picture book I did which is a little board book I did for my we've got our first grandchild now um she, her name is Tyne and she's now nearly well she's four four and a wee bit but when I did it she was two and she was living in Canada and we were just playing on zoom just like we're talking to you now and um uh we were playing with words and she was in Canada and I was in New Zealand and it, it turned into this funny little I she she got off zoom and I thought hey that's quite a good idea. I'll just write that down. And it's turned into this very, well, even though I say so myself, a, a quite successful little board book. It's just got a white raven as well over in Munich. So mm. um, <laughs> so that's that's not too bad, really. Um, so I think I haven't intentionally been doing things for the gallery. But on the other hand, it does give me a place to put things that are little that are one-offs. Do you know what I mean? Whereas they're not books anymore; they're they're just a, a particular idea. So recently, well, a wee while ago now, we went down to the Auckland Islands on a on one of the expeditions going down there. And when I came back, I did a, quite a few things to do with mythology and the sea because that's what struck me on our on our trip. But that's kind of fit, fitted nicely into the gallery because it's given me a chance to. A place to put it where whereas before i would have had to come up with a whole book to stick that in now i can there's still i mean it's still an illustration it's still about telling a story there's still about um the odyssey and uh, the edge of the world and and the kraken you know the, the sea monsters and things like that so there's still quite literary things it's just that they're little, just one-offs and the other thing that I've been doing recently is actually making things like making little paper mache models and uh, little dioramas and things like that. And I mean, I probably would have done that anyway because I just felt like playing around with it. But it does it does feel good that there is a place to put that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? I don't have to hang around and wait for an exhibition somewhere to stick it somewhere. I can actually put it up on one of the shelves and people can see it there. So, so in an odd I'm, very, very, I'm very, very grateful to, to Jill for doing it. Yeah. So the store has actually helped you with your creativity rather than hindered it? Oh, I think so. I mean, I've never I'm, uh, I've never ever thought of it as being getting in the way. It was always kind of a, uh, it was always Jill's and it was always a kind of side thing. And in fact, the, the biggest problem we've ever had with it was prizing stuff out of my, my drawer. Yeah, you know, because I was, uh, because I was, oh no, you don't want to put that on the wall. But she'll come in, and you know, I'll come back the next morning, and it's not there; it's on the wall. So, yeah, I think it's probably fair to say, Vanda, it was quite interesting in the early days. We did have to um, work out who was responsible for what, because it is David's art. And I'm very respectful of that. But at the same time, he knows nothing about running a business. He hasn't got a commercial <laughs> bone in his body. And your point about does he do, you know, art for the gallery, 100% no. 
he doesn't do that. He can't do drawings for money. He he really does do drawings for for love or for what he feels. And I think that's actually the key to the success of the gallery. So we did have to initially, he doesn't have any sort of hard business sense. So I said, we, we, we had a few negotiations and it was agreed that David would be absolutely the master of his own artwork. So artistic director, he can say what was in the gallery, what doesn't, whatever he says. I do do what he says in that respect. But when it comes to the gallery and the running of the gallery, that's my area. And I think if you don't make that de demarcation, you just end up squabbling on the border. Do you know what I mean? So, and it works. I have to say it works pretty well in the main. It's it's worked out, yeah, pretty good. Mm, it has, yeah. Well, look, mm. thank you so much, David and Jill, for coming on the show today and talking about your illustration, but also um, you know talking about having a gallery and you know that different dimension to the um, illustration career that you have there, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. Mm, thank you very much, Fanda. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's our show for this month. Um, thanks for listening in. And also thanks to my guest today, David Eggleton, who was talking about Respirator, a Poet Laureate collection 2019 to 2022. And to David and Jill Elliott talking about children's book illustration and writing. And also their store, The Flying Whale. So join us again next month as we delve into that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy plenty of great reading. What do you want to be when you grow up? They say you are what you read and the University Bookshop can help you be whoever you want to be. Do you want to be an athlete? Then sit down with an inspiring sports biography. Do you fancy yourself as a detective? We have a grisly lineup of murder mysteries waiting just for you. Do you aspire to be the world's greatest chef? We have cookbooks to tantalise your taste buds. Do you want to celebrate your inner child? Play up in our fabulous children's room. The University Bookshop, helping you decide what you want to be when you grow up. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.